Thank you, Father Lee. Um, it's very good to be with you. Thank you for asking me to do this this morning. And it's uh, very good to meet you all. Some of you I know, uh, most of you I don't know, but um, it's wonderful to uh, be with you this morning. Um, as Father Lee mentioned, I want to talk to you about sin. And as he also said, um, it's delightful usually to talk about other people's sins, but I do not want to talk about those. Nor do I want to talk about corporate sins, social ills of whatever kind. It's not that it's unimportant to talk about other people's sins. Sometimes it's appropriate to talk about other people's sins. Uh, the scriptures sometimes do. And uh, sometimes it's also appropriate to talk about social ills and corporate ills. Um, sometimes we talk too much, though, about other people's ills and about corporate ills. And um, for that reason, if no other, I would like to talk with you this morning about our own sins and about compunction and introspection. Um, another related reason for that is that introspection and talk about our own sins has perhaps obtained a bit of a bad reputation over the last 50 or 100 years at least. Um, we've become suspicious of forebears such as St. Augustine and St. Anselm with their introspective conscience, which sometimes we refer to as an introspective conscience that the entire West shares. Um, and we give a theological rationale for our apprehension of talking about sin sometimes by saying, well, we should begin with Jesus Christ and his grace and goodness. And if you were in the first service this morning, uh, we talked about the goodness of Christ. Good teacher, says the rich young ruler. So we want to begin with Jesus Christ, with his grace. And sometimes we focus so much about so much on the grace that comes to us in Jesus Christ um, that we forget to talk about sin. Um, and it seems to me that although indeed we should begin with Jesus Christ, we should begin all our talk, all our theological talk with Jesus Christ and with God's grace in Jesus Christ, uh, part of that talk about Jesus Christ is the recognition of how unlike him we are often. And how much more we need to become like him. How much we need the renewal in him. And so the uh, introspection uh, for which I want to make a plea with you this morning is one that I will take us to uh, the Christian tradition uh, various other fathers of the church and later theologians of the church, uh, all keeping in mind that also when it comes to the doctrine of sin, the saying holds true, no pain, no gain. Um, we're going to look at various spiritual writers, um, Depending on how much time we have, I'm keeping an eye on the clock, and I think I have till, um, till 10.30. Um, and with every theologian that we'll be looking at, every spiritual writer that we'll be looking at, uh, we're going to ask 
the question of how it is that they treat their talk about sin uh, as, as a therapy, as it were, as a form of healing to draw us more deeply into Jesus Christ. The, um, the subtitle of the talk, as I mentioned, I think, has to do with compunction and introspection. Compunction and introspection. Now, the first of those two terms, compunction, um, is an old one. Um, I found it in the uh, fifth century uh, theologian John Cassian, um, who talks about read his readers being painfully pierced, as he calls it. Um, the word compunction basically means to be pierced. Uh, it comes from a Latin term, compungere, pungere, uh, to pierce. Uh, so when Peter preaches his Pentecost sermon, his famous sermon in Acts chapter 2, the people react, it says in the book of Acts, by being, well, let's, let's use the, the Vulgate translation, by having compunction in their hearts. And most of our translations say, um, by being cut to the heart, which is pretty good too. It's not quite the same thing as being pierced, but it's very similar. That's not to say that compunction, this being pierced to the heart, is, sim is, is about morbid introspection. Compunction aims at contemplation, at joy, and at peace as the result. Also, it's not always and only sin that pierces. Joy, too, pierces the heart. Either way, though, the heart must be pierced for God in Christ to heal us and for us to reach our desired end. When John Cassian traveled from Palestine down south to Lower Egypt in the late 4th century with his friend Germanus, he and Germanus, Cassian and Germanus, sat down at Abba Isaac's feet to learn from him about sin and compunction. Cassian reports this interaction in the Ninth Conference. Abba Isaac explains to the two young pilgrims various types of prayers. And he explains how they come together into one when the Spirit of God lifts us up into what he calls unspeakable groanings. And the state of mind that results from those unspeakable groanings is being shaped by contemplation of God alone, says Abba Isaac, contemplation of God alone. And what he calls the fire of love, fire of love. And then he goes on to talk about the Lord's Prayer. Why the Lord's Prayer? Because it's this perfect prayer which contains, he says, fullness of perfection and so carries us into the unspeakable prayer of fire which rises beyond all human consciousness. So that's all Abba Isaac talking. So there's a transition to this ineffable prayer, this unspeakable prayer of fire, and that transition is marked by compunction. So for Abba Isaac, compunction is the moment that we move from meditation, from various types of prayers, to contemplation in ineffable prayer, unspeakable prayer. 
different kinds of activities can set it off, can lead to this prayer of fire. He mentions singing psalms, listening to one of the other monks sing psalms. Um, when somebody holds a spiritual talk um, in a wonderful way. Or, very sadly, when one of the brothers dies, or a friend dies. Or even when we are mindful of our own lack of warmth, when we're thinking of our own carelessness. Each of these the spirit may use to cause compunction in the soul. When a couple of centuries later, 7th century, uh, John Climacus, a monk from Mount Sinai, um, when he talks about compunction, he uses another, another word uh, along with it, the word mourning. He uses both words, compunction and mourning. And he discusses both of them in step seven. He has 30 steps on this ladder of divine ascent. And for now, we're only on step seven. He defines compunction this way. He says it is an eternal torment of conscience which brings about the cooling of the fire of the heart through silent confession. And for John Climacus, it is sin that causes the conscience to be in pain. True compunction, he writes, is pain of soul without any distraction. It has to do with confession, with repentance, because only these can cause the sorrow that we need. In such pain, we cannot but mourn our sin. Mourning, explains Climacus, is a melancholy of the soul, a disposition of an anguished heart that passionately seeks what it thirsts for. So compunction and mourning for St. John Climacus uh, seem almost one and the same thing. And these two expressions are in turn also linked with what he calls the gift of tears. Pain of mourning leads to tears. He calls it a gift. For the tears often come unexpectedly. And the Lord comes uninvited, says John Climacus, without us even striving for it. At the same time, that gift of tears is not one that we should passively wait for. St. John counsels us. He says, do not cease laboring for it. And he tells us to hold fast to it. We should recall our sins as well as the judgment of God so that the tears will come. Never stop, he says. This is very strong language he's going to use here. Never stop imagining and examining the abyss of dark fire, its cruel minions, the merciless, inexorable judge, the limitless chaos of subterranean flame, the narrow descents down to underground chambers and yawning gulfs and other such images. Morning is the result then for John Climacus, both of God graciously entering the soul and at one and the same time of us reflecting on our own sins. Both perspectives for Climacus are equally valid, the God perspective as it were, and our own striving. But why mourn if it involves detesting our lives, keeping the fires of hell before our eyes, 
and experiencing this agonizing pain. Well, Climacus explains that compunction in, is a transition, just as it was for John Cassian, is a transition and leads to joy and consolation. As soon as we experience the pain of compunction, comfort mixes in, he says, and takes over. Inward joy and gladness mingle with what we call mourning and grief like honey in a comb. And when it arrives, he says, we're just like kids, laughing and crying at the same time. He even invents a new word in Greek to describe this mixture of, of grief and joy. Harma um, lupe in Greek. You can forget the Greek term, but first part, harma is joy, and lupe means grief. So it's a joyful grief or a grieving joy, or whatever you want to term it. Fear lifts, he says, and joy comes dawning in this grief. So compunction, yes, it has to do with sorrow of sin, and yes, it has to do even with fear of hell for John Climacus. But it gives way to comfort and joy that arrive at one and the same time. Clearly, though, compunction entails great inward turmoil. That much is clear by now. When we're confronted with God's revelation of himself, that can be an emotional roller coaster. The very purpose is to transform us. The only way to get there is by allowing the scriptures to speak into our lives. Scripture interprets us as much as we interpret the scriptures. Indeed, for many of the authors in the, in the um, tradition of, of uh, Lexio Divina, um, meditative reading, and of contemplation, for many of these authors, we read two books at one and the same time. The book of Scripture on the one hand, and the book of experience on the other hand. Much later than the two writers that we've looked at so far, turning to the 12th century, Bernard of Clairvaux, he begins the third of his sermons on the Song of Songs in this way. Today, he says, very beginning of the sermon, today we read the book of experience. Let us turn to ourselves. And let each of us search his own conscience about what is said. I want to investigate whether it's been given to any of you to say, let him kiss me with the kiss of his mouth. Few can say this wholeheartedly. But if anyone receives the spiritual kiss of Christ's mouth, he seeks eagerly to have it again and again. I think no one can know what it is except he who has received it. So the bride's bold request at the very beginning of the Song of Songs, let him kiss me with a kiss of his mouth, confronts us with our own experience. Our own life is a book, book of experience. that's open to us when we open the book of Scripture. Just as scripture, the book of scripture, opens to us the book of experience, so it's our personal experience that in turn gives us access to the, to the inward sense, as it were, of the scriptures. 
another um, writer from the 12th century, Guigo II, um, speaks at some length of the blessed tears, very similar to Cassian and, and, and Climacus, blessed tears that come to us when we prayerfully meditate on the scriptures. And this 12th century abbot questions then why he bothers with talking about sweetness of tears. He says, why do we try and express in everyday language affections that no language can, can describe? It's beyond language. Those who have not known such things do not understand them, he says, for they could learn more clearly of them only from the book of experience. Same language as Bernard, right? They can only learn from it by means of the book of experience, where God's grace itself is a teacher. Otherwise, it's no use for the reader to search in earthly books. There's little sweetness in the study of the literal sense, unless there be a commentary, which is found in the heart. So we have the scriptures, we read it in its literal sense, and he says, we then need a commentary book of experience to properly understand it. So it's useless to try and explain the unspeakable realities that the reading of Scripture leads us to. The only way we understand those, the only way we understand the inward sense of the Scriptures is through experience, the book of experience. Now the flip side to that, as you can appreciate, is whenever you and I lack experience, it becomes a pressing issue as we search the inward sense or the spiritual depth of Scripture. What if we don't have anything corresponding, corresponding in our book of experience to what's there in the Scriptures? Bernard of Clairvaux, along with many others, worried deeply about this. If you've had that ineffable experience, this, then yes, you can say with David, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, Psalm 51. But when Bernard looks at himself, it's not there. Never mind the, resto never mind the restoring. He says, a soul like mine, burdened with sins, cannot dare say that while it is still crippled by fleshly passions. And while it does not feel the sweetness of the Spirit and is almost wholly unfamiliar with and inexperienced in inner joys. So the requirement of feeling, of experience, means that being inexperienced precludes you from properly understanding the Scriptures. Now that worry of St. Bernard is one that many other spiritual writers had too precisely because Scripture confronts us so directly with our lives, including our sins and our shortcomings, these monastic authors often worried that lack of experience would expose them as hypocrites. Germanus again, right? John Cassian's fellow traveler. He knew of sorrow, grief, tears, all those things, and that gave him joy, but... He also worried when none of that was there. Sometimes, he says, it has happened to me 
that wishing once more for these tears of compunction to flow, I've spent all my efforts on this. I recall to mind all my mistakes, all my sins, and still I cannot recover that rich abundance of tears. My eyes stay dry, like the hardest stone. Not even the tiniest drop is shed. And just as I rejoice in that outflowing of tears, so I grieve when I cannot recover it at will. There's grave implications for Germanus and for Cassian when the grief isn't matched by tears and so seems to indicate that the grief may not be real. Um, The lack of tears bothers no one as immensely as in the late 11th century it does bother St. Anselm. His prayers and meditations, beautiful, beautiful prayers and meditations, um, but very, very introspective. Um, they're meant, these prayers and meditations, they're meant for, for royalty, ladies at, ladies at court, for their personal meditation. He gives them, gives these prayers and meditations to these ladies at court that they may read them and meditate, self-examine. He says it's to stir, they are to stir up the mind of the reader to the love or fear of God or to self-examination. And so he tells them to only read a little piece at a time. You can start wherever you want. Don't rush. Read slowly. Meditate upon them, etc. What what that means is he wants his prayers and meditations, that little booklet, he wants them to function just like, well, just like we treat the scriptures. We meditate on them just like we meditate on, on the Bible. Their purpose is meditation, this compunction that I've been talking about, and ultimately contemplation. Now he ratchets up this emotional tension to a level that was probably not witnessed until that time. He has prayers to Christ, Mary, John the Baptist, Peter, Paul, Stephen, several other other saints. And in almost every one of them, he is deeply bothered by his lack of tears. He fails, he says, to dissolve entirely in tears. And if there's no tears, how could he have hope? How can I hope? Without hope, how can I pray? Pray Without prayer, what can I obtain? Anselm is faced with a huge dilemma, in other words. In, he has three prayers in his booklet, three prayers to St. Mary, to the Virgin. And... In the first one, he confesses this about his sins. He says, if, if they are concealed, the sins, if they are concealed, they cannot be healed. If they're seen, they are detestable. And then he prays to St. John the Baptist the following. He says, if I look within myself, I cannot bear myself. If I do not look within myself, I do not know myself. If I consider myself, what I see terrifies me. If I do not consider myself, I fall to my damnation. If I look at myself, it's an intolerable horror. If I do not look at myself, death is unavoidable. Evil here, worse there, 
ill on every side. But there's too much evil here, too much that is worse there, too much ill on every side. He's in a double bind, right? He cannot reveal his sins because they're detestable. But his sins are not forgiven unless they're confessed. How do we overcome this double bind of St. Anselm? And how does he want to overcome it? Well, it seems to me that what Anselm aims at is by our very reading of his prayers and of his meditations, we are, in fact, confessing our sins. And we are, in fact, as a result, pierced by compunction. And it is through meditating on his prayers and meditations that healing can occur. And so the bridge from here to there, from us to God, which seems so huge sometimes in Anselm, so that it can never find God, it's a bridge that's being healed, being bridged through meditation and through confession as we meditate with St. Anselm, agonizing over unworthiness as no one before Anselm had done. So theologies of tears have a shadow side. If there is no book of experience to speak of. And yet, Anselm must have experienced enough, despite his protestations to the contrary, must have experienced enough of God's own presence to turn back every time again to the scriptures, to seek the face of God yet again. Let's turn to St. Augustine. I want to turn to St. Augustine, especially because what we see in, in Augustine's Confessions is a very similar sort of thing, um, but with a use of, of the scriptures themselves um, as he tries to give articulation to a theology of tears and a theology of, of compunction. As you know, it took him a long time to turn decisively to the Lord. There were all sorts of obstacles that stood in his ways. And nothing was as much of a hindrance as his unwillingness, inability to let go of sinful habits, especially sexual ones. Ingrained evil, he says, had more hold over me than unaccustomed good. The nearer approached the moment of time when I would become different, the moment of conversion, the nearer it came, the greater the horror of it struck me. And when he finally, in book eight, when he then describes the, book, the moment of, experience, of, of conversion, what stands out is the experiential character of it, the same kind of experience that we've seen in, in several of the later authors of the 12th century. We see it already in St. Augustine here. Dredging up all his misery, he says, from a hidden depth of self-examination, he breaks down in what he calls a massive downpour of tears, a massive downpour of tears, 
which makes him quickly move away from his friend Olypius, um, at whose side he's, he, he is at that moment. And then he says, to pour it all out with the accompanying groans. Now, I want you to maybe just follow in this long quotation, but just follow here all the words accompany, that, that I have to do with, with tears and so on. To pour it all, all out with the accompanying groans, I got up from beside Olypius. Solitude seemed to me more appropriate for the business of weeping. And I moved further away to ensure that even his presence put no inhibition upon me. He sensed that this was my condition at the time. I think I may have said something that made it clear that the sound of my voice was already choking with tears. So I stood up. While in profound astonishment, he remained where we were sitting. I threw myself down under a certain fig tree and let my tears flow freely. Rivers streamed from my eyes. A sacrifice acceptable to you. He's quoting Psalm 51, right? A sacrifice acceptable to you. And, though not in these words, yet in this sense, I repeatedly said to you, How long, O Lord? How long, Lord, will you be angry to the uttermost? Do not be mindful of our old iniquities. For I felt my past to have a grip on me. I uttered wretched cries. How long? How long is it to be? Tomorrow, tomorrow. Why not now? Why not now? Why not an end to my impure life in this very hour? Here he says, weeping in bitter agony. And then he hears the child's voice. You probably have heard the story before. The child's voice chanting the words, pick up and read, pick up and read. He hurries back to Olypius, reads from Romans chapter 13. And this light of relief floods his heart as he breaks with his past. It's obvious that tears are central to this, to this account of, of Augustine. There's multiple different terms that he uses. Downpour, weeping, tears, rivers, cries, at least five different terms. And you must have picked up the narrative is, is deliberately dramatic, right? It's not like he's faking the account. I'm not saying that. He's not, I think. It's, there's obviously great emotional upheaval. But there is something deliberate about all this. His voice choking, getting up from beside Olypius because he knows he's going to break down. And then he finds a place where he doesn't have to restrain himself. Something very deliberate about this. And then he says, I let my tears flow freely. I let my tears flow freely. It's an open display of emotion, an introspection that since that time has been the topic of much, much debate. Now, I want to just draw attention to one aspect of it, and that is the link between this personal experience of Augustine and the scriptures. He appeals, you will recall, to Psalm 51. That's David's prayer after his sin with Bathsheba. Well-known penitential psalm. 
which David prayed, as you know, after his sin with Bathsheba. And so it's a sexual transgression that he's lamenting. He recognizes this transgression as a sin against God himself. Now David actually does not mention tears in the psalm. But that does not stop Augustine. What David does do is plead with God to fill him with joy and gladness. David does speak of his bones being humbled. And he does pray, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And most importantly, David comes clean with the words, a sacrifice to God is an afflicted spirit, a contrite and humbled heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. It doesn't take much imagination, right, to, to imagine David as weeping with tears before God. And Augustine fills in the blanks. Rivers streamed from my eyes, a sacrifice acceptable to God. So he interprets a sacrifice acceptable to God as tears streaming from his eyes, no matter that David didn't actually mention them. Augustine senses this affinity with David in repentance from sexual sin. And he concludes, David's emotional descriptions of grief imply tears streaming from his eyes. So scripture offers the precedent, or at least maybe we should say the surmised precedent, he just fills in the blanks, for Augustine's own tears. In this case, the book, book 8 of the Confessions, in this case, it's Psalm 51. But people meditating upon the scriptures over the centuries recognize the same weeping also in other biblical passages. Abba Isaac, going back to this earlier 5th century author, Cassian, Abba Isaac explains to the two travelers, Cassian and Germanus, different types of tears. He has a biblically construed, well, topology or taxonomy. <laughs> different kinds of tears. First type, tears caused by the thorn of our sins. And he looks for biblical biblical examples. For example, he says, Psalm 6, verse 6, in our Bible, Psalm 6, verse 6, I have labored in my groanings. Every night I will wash my bed. I will water my couch with my tears. And the same type of tears caused by the thorn of sins, he finds it also in Lamentations 2. Let tears run down like a torrent day and night. Give thyself no rest and let not the apple of thy eyes cease. Then second, there's tears that flow from contemplation and longing for eternity. Psalm 42, and, uh, Psalm 42, for example. When shall I come and appear before the face of God? My tears have been my bread day and night. Tears of longing, says Cassian. Third type of tears. Tears caused by fear of hell and judgment. Psalm 143, for example. Enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight no man living shall be justified. Yet another kind of tears, fourth one, is caused by sinfulness of other people. 
I told you we wouldn't talk about sins of others. This is the one exception, all right? Sinfulness of others can cause tears. Samuel weeping over Saul, for Samuel 15. Our Lord weeping over Jerusalem in Luke 9. And finally, sometimes believers, well, they simply express their worries, their anxieties with tears to the Lord. That's what Jeremiah did when he cried in chapter 9, Who will give water to my head and a fountain of tears to my eyes? And I will weep night and day for the slain of the daughter of my people. And so did, which is called in the, in the heading over the psalm, over Psalm 102, the poor worried man who poured out his complaint to the Lord. That's got to be the greatest heading of the psalms, right? The poor worried man who poured out his complaint to the Lord. I did eat ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Each of these five types, explains Abba Isaac, each of these five types has biblical precedent. Compunction, or piercing of the soul, as we meditate on scripture, along with St. Augustine and Abba Isaac and others, that compunction is sharp, it is fierce, and can be agonizing. Opening ourselves up to the scriptures is not for the faint of heart. It's a practice that is marked by tears, so much so that the absence of it often caused and causes emotional upheaval. Now that can easily cause apprehensions and fears of even opening the scriptures. If Bernard, right, if he hardly thought he knew the book of experience, if Anselm struggled to bridge the gap between us and the Lord, how are our attempts at reading scripture not cavalier or not presumptuous? That may be so, but if anything stands out in these authors and also in others, it is that compunction is biblical. Scripture models for us the grief of compunction. When, they, when, when these spiritual writers scour the biblical text, they saw their own pangs of experience and their own tears reflected all over the place. Perhaps we have ignored too long the language of sin. Starting with divine grace, sometimes failing even to discuss our own personal sin at all. But the Christian tradition works on the conviction that the Bible pries open our lives and exposes the secrets of our hearts. We need a retrieval of compunction and tears because the joy of salvation rests on our experiential repentance from sin. An introspective conscience isn't the same as morbid despair. It's true, Bernard sometimes takes a dim view of his own experiences. But he also has moments, brief moments, of contemplation. 
preaching on, on uh, the Song of Songs, chapter 3, verse 1. In my bed by night I sought him whom my soul loveth. Bernard writes, even though I had even though I also had been privileged sometimes to enjoy that favor, do you suppose it would be possible for me to describe that experience? He hints at it, but he's not going to go there, and he cannot go there because it's inexpressible. Introspection did bring him, at times, through compunction, to the joy of seeing the face of God. And St. Anselm, I think, was no different. It's true that those prayers and meditations may make us apprehensive. There's frightful anguish there at times. But, as we saw, his introspective conscience did not leave him without hope. Anselm wants us to read him the way that we read the scriptures, with trust that through a meditative reading of the prayers and meditations, we may be pierced and so changed. Divine inbreaking of grace. Authors such as the ones that we've looked at saw themselves as mystagogues. They were theologians in the ancient sense of that term. They saw themselves as drawing others into the life of God. And so their focus on introspection, um, compunction, served the purpose of healing, a therapeutic purpose, clearing the ground for participation in God's life. Introspection, then, is not morbid despair. It is, as John Climacus puts it, joyful grief, right? Karma lupe, at one and the same time. Looking within allows for the joy of eternity to enter into our hearts. Bread of tears is indispensable food. Why? It is the real presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are over time. I don't see Father Lee, but I know that we're past time. Uh, so we should probably stop there. Is that correct? Or is there time for questions? Maybe a few, he says. All right. Maybe a few questions. Anyone? Sorry? A few means two, and they mean short questions. <laughs> and it needs to be done quickly, or, or else we'll reduce it to one. Yes, my, uh, Michael, right? When you, when you talk about body, you mean the body of the church? Yes. Um, it's a great question. Um, one of the um, concerns that may come up as, as we're listening to all this is this is introspective, and it also means it's, it's, it's rather an individual practice. So what about, what about the church? You know, what about the community? Um, now, although I can't go into detail, it's fair to say that different monastic orders 
uh, different practices, some more solitary, others more communal. Um, and it's particular, particularly the more communal types of monastic spirituality in which it was abundantly clear that the meditation on the Psalms, for example, especially, um, but meditation in general and, and introspection in general um, took place within a communal context, within the context of the entire monastic community. Um, think of the seven offices that were being prayed um, every day uh, together. Uh, and so individual and communal uh, reflection meditation um, both, both took place. Even in a more um, solitary or anchoritic setting, where, where you know, the monk is all by himself. Um, there is always the context of the larger body of Christ. Um, for one always prays being carried by the community, and one leads to the community. If you looked up John Climacus's The Ladder of Divine Ascent and looked for an icon, by, uh, there, you'll find a 13th century icon where, where monks, including John Climacus, climb up to heaven. And it may look like a very solitary thing to do, and in some ways it is. Uh, others don't carry us to heaven. We climb up to heaven ourselves. But there's angels on the, at the top encouraging the monks, including Climacus. Um, there's the monastic community at the bottom with uplifted hands, praying for them. Um, the ladder has 30 rungs, the life of Christ. In other words, it is in Christ that they ascend, that they go up to heaven. Uh, the body of Christ is emphatically present. Um, but it is true that each of the, of the authors that we've looked at highlight the need for true effort to enter into the heavenly places. And I guess the reason why I'm emphasizing it is uh, sometimes we emphasize the embodiment and the communal aspect so much um, that we forget that individual repentance and introspection are, are um, indispensable aspect of that. Not to the exclusion of the other aspects, but are indispensable. Um, one more question or not? One more question. <laughs> Yes, Brian. Sorry? Yes. Yeah. Um, in, in my readings of them here, they haven't talked, they don't, don't talk about this. Um, but many of us struggle with unresolved guilt and, 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 um, even when we have confessed, repented, these things come back time and time again. Um, I can't draw on the authors by way of, of, of response because um, they don't explicitly speak of it, except maybe indirectly St. Anselm, because he seems to suggest that no matter what he says, it's not good enough. So he indirectly, you could say, talks about it. Um, and 
maybe two comments. One is um, we should not hold in front of us a, a sort of mirage or a picture um, of once I've repented, life's going to be good. Um, to have unresolved things or to have things come back time and time again is, is, is very quote-unquote natural. Um, there are things in everybody's life, for some more so than others to be sure, but I think there are things in everybody's life that keep coming back to us and haunt us. Um, and um, some things that are, and then second comment is, um, some of the things that are, are some of the ways in, in which to deal with them are um, to keep bringing them to God in repentance oneself and to also admit them um, to a priest or, spirit, or a spiritual director um, to keep acknowledging them and to pray for God's forgiveness and renewal each time again. Um, but there's a real sense, to go back to the first point, there's a real sense in which true resolution waits until the final day. Um, our life is not a life without any worries, without any anxieties. Um, and, and, and the very desire, or the very insistence, perhaps, that we ought to have such a life can become a burden to us. There is no such life, I think, on this side of the eschaton, this side of the hereafter. Thank you. <laughs>